What does it mean to renounce strongholds? Well, it's not advanced discipleship. Jesus said anyone who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciples. Early believers took this work seriously and did it readily. What did they understand that we do not? Dana Gresh connects the work of renouncing to the powerful lost secret of the blood covenant in this podcast, originally delivered at the Pure Freedom Masterclass. The fifth step in healing has been the one that has been the hardest for me to understand. If the fourth step was the hardest for me to believe and accept, the fifth has been the hardest for me to understand. In fact, As we approach it, I have to confess to you that for many years, I skipped this step as I prayed with people. And my friend Lynn, who wrote the six steps, kept saying, stop skipping the steps. And I was like, but I don't get the step. She's like, just because you don't get something about God doesn't mean it's not something important that God is doing. You'll understand it when you're ready to understand it. So as we look at this subject of renouncing strongholds that are manifesting in your life, I confess to you that I sort of understand it now. (laughs) And here's something that I've noticed in my walk with the Lord. The more I grow in my understanding, the more I realize how far away from truly understanding God I really am. It's almost as if the closer I get to him, And the closer I feel to him, the more I realize how far I have to go. (laughs) Does anybody identify with that? And this is one of those areas, and I think I'm just beginning to understand a little bit about it. I hope I can shed some light on what it means to renounce a stronghold, but I do have a conviction that it's very important. I want to share with you a case study of someone we'll call this individual Blake. This is not a person that I personally prayed with, but it's someone that my friend Lynn prayed with. And I, for that reason, am not a firsthand witness to this story. So I'm going to tell it with as much integrity as I can. But I think I'm probably not going to get the story entirely right. You will understand the gist of it. So Blake was a brand new believer, a professor at Penn State University, when she came to Lynn, one of the presenting problems was really chronic, sticky emotion of anger. And, you know, new believers, super excited about Jesus, but angry, 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 to the point that at one point she locked herself in a bedroom so that she wouldn't hurt her children. And so Lynn was was praying, was working through it, actually took her through the prayer process, didn't figure the problem out, the anger continued, took her through the prayer process another time, didn't figure the problem out. The problem continued. And then she said, well, let me come to your home and where you're angry, because that was where it was happening, always in the home, and take a look around. Well, when she got to the home, this woman had a literal worship center, altar. <laughs> it would be best described as mostly full of crystals, healing crystals, and other things like that. And so Lynn kind of had a sense that maybe this is something that should be discussed and explored. It hadn't come up in the prayer times together. And so she began talking with her more and more. Found out that this individual was doing yoga. Now, if if you're all of a sudden alerted and saying, but I do yoga, just listen to me. I don't do yoga, and this story is the reason I don't do yoga. I think probably it's possible that there are some types of yoga that are disconnected from the Eastern meditation from which it was originally founded. What she was doing was not. It was very worshipful. 
and there was meditation involved in it. If you really look into some of the roots of yoga, there are worship positions, Sanskrit worship positions. And for that reason, I, I'm a Pilates girl. I think I get the same job done, and I'm not bound down to the sun or doing a, you know, whatever, downward dog. I don't know what there are. So I don't want you to be offended if you enjoy yoga. You take that to God. You explore that with God. Decide. But this particular person, this woman, was actually worshiping, but she just wasn't aware of it because she was participating in the Eastern meditative practices of the particular type of yoga she was doing. So Lynn went back into the prayer room with her, and this time they were very careful to renounce her connections and her choices to participate in Eastern forms of worship, idolatry, and the anger stopped. We serve a supernatural God. We serve a God who says, you will have no other God before me. And there are times when our worship is out of order and we must renounce the things that have been sitting on the throne where only God belongs. Now, probably not a lot of you in here have occultic practices in your past or Eastern worship in your past or whatever it is. You're thinking, I don't know if I have anything to renounce. Well, as I've come to understand this, I'm going to guarantee that everyone listening to me right now does have something to renounce, including myself. So let's explore this and try to understand what exactly is renouncing. The early Christians really understood this. They practiced it readily. There's several things in the Bible that in the New Testament, you see, it's almost like the New Testament believers understood it, so it didn't need to be explained, so it's not explained for us. A good example of that would be fasting. It's not really well explained. There isn't like a guide to fasting in the Bible that's easy to use and understand. You have to piece together things in the scripture. But they understood something that made them realize how significant a factor it was. And I think renouncing is like that. So it's just mentioned in ways that it's like they understood it and they did it. What is renouncing? Renouncing means to disclaim, to disown, to reject publicly. It's the act of spiritually saying no to something, to sin, temptation, Satan. It's kind of a little bit of an expression of repentance, but it goes a little bit deeper than that. And as I said, the early Christians really understood it. It was basic Christianity 101. It wasn't advanced discipleship. It wasn't advanced theology. Jesus said this in Luke 14, 33. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Renouncing is this. It means that if there is anything between you and Jesus, you say no to it. We have to choose between Christ. If we have to choose between Christ and anything else, we choose Christ. And nobody really lives that out perfectly, but the early church seemed to understand it. They understood it and they practiced it. In the fourth century, many churches used these words as they baptized new believers. Do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness? Do you renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? Do you renounce all sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? And some churches still actually use that question in their baptismal services, but not many. 
Now here, as I was studying the ancient church and how they used that, they were making a formal declaration that this individual being baptized was being transferred from the side of Satan to the side of God. They understood the spiritual battle in the heavenly places. They understood there is a battle between God and Satan, good and evil, angels and demons, and I am choosing from this day which side I will live on. Now, one of the things I was intrigued by is that some of the documents I read revealed that this baptism and being asked this question and answering it and choosing to renounce followed up to three years of discipleship and deliverance as one by one specific strongholds were identified in the new convert's life and they would one by one tackle them and renounce them specifically. And then after that period of time, then they would be baptized. Now, I don't know that that's actually biblical because we have examples in the New Testament of believers coming to Christ and being baptized in pretty short order. However, what it does tell me is that they took it seriously. They were not playing with Christianity the way that we are. They took it seriously that they were choosing to say no to Satan and all of his ways, and they were choosing to say yes henceforth to Christ and all of his ways. They took their commitment to Jesus and their obedience to him seriously. Do you? Do I? And I wonder if our relationship to God would mean more if we did take it more seriously. So I had to ask myself, as Lynn was pressing me into understanding renouncing, what did they understand that I did not, do not understand? Why did renouncing make sense to them? How can we gain understanding so that it can make sense to us? And it led me to studying covenant something that we really do not study well. It's something that I've been studying for about 25 years. It's one of my favorite little geeky pastimes to read books on covenant, to understand covenant. One of my favorite books is The Power of the Blood Covenant by Malcolm Smith. He's a brother in Christ, although he's like a brother from another mother because he's kind of a different denomination, different line of thinking. But this, I haven't told you of too many must-read books, right? I've told you one so far. This is my other one. My daughter Lexi asked me, what is a book that is maybe the most influential book in your Christian walk? And she asked me to give her that for Christmas this year, and I bought her this book. Let me read to you something that Malcolm writes at the beginning of this book. Before they actually saw it, astronomers were aware that the planet we know as Pluto was in the solar system because of the gravitational influence it exerted on other planets. My journey into covenant has been much the same. As I read through scripture and studied its characters, I became aware that they knew something that I did not know. That something exerted a tremendous influence over the way they understood God and his salvation. The bold faith they exercised with authority was in response to that something. It became obvious to me that whatever it was was the foundation upon which the people of God built their lives. That something was the secret in their life and the walk with God and the basis of their exploits done in his name. It showed up the most in the New Testament, where again, I was aware that the believers were responding to something I did not know was there. They seemed to look at salvation through a different lens than the one I was using. I discovered that the something I did not know about was the covenant God had made with his people. 
It is difficult for me now to remember how I looked at the scripture before I came to see and understand covenant. Malcolm Smith goes on to say that if we embrace our salvation, walk in the Christian faith without an understanding of covenant, he would actually equate that to a gospel without power. That's a pretty strong declaration. That if you do not understand covenant, you're walking in a gospel without power. Now, I can't really unfold to you everything I've studied in 25 years. And I honestly, of all the six sessions, these are the notes that are the most marked up, ripped up, pulled up, moved around. I don't even know where I'm going today. But what I can do is just beg you that somehow this gives you a desire to study and understand covenant. And somehow it helps you to understand a little bit about why it's so important that we would renounce strongholds. Let me define covenant for you. A covenant is a relationship that is a stunning blend of law and love. A covenant is a relationship that is a stunning blend of law and love. This definition comes from a sermon by Tim Keller. The word love throughout the Old Testament covenant is the word hesed, H-E-S-E-D. It's a word really for mercy because it is expected that this love would be tested and mercy would need to be applied. And yet there is a connotation throughout the Old Testament that it would be unfailing, that that love would be unfailing. No matter what was done, on our part to be unfaithful and break the law of the covenant and break the love of the covenant that God would rise up in his has said love, his unfailing love and be faithful. He is faithfulness. He cannot disown himself. There is nothing else that he can offer us but faithfulness. But he's also righteous and he's also a judge. And when the law is broken, the stakes are high and the expense is great. And so it's not that the law doesn't matter. It's a very significant part of the relationship. In this particular message by Tim Keller, which the title of that message is actually a covenant relationship, he references a passage that I have long loved, and I'm going to ask you to turn to Genesis 15, 7 to 21. Genesis 15, 7 to 21. It's, the, it's a look at the first outright mention of covenant relationship with God. It's the formalization, the sealing of the covenant God would make with Abraham. I'm going to begin reading to you Genesis 15, 7. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Okay, first of all, do you see that that's like a whole farmyard full of animals? And he, Abram, brought God all these, cut them in half, how bloody, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. 
and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot with a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, we read that and we have little understanding of what was really happening because we don't speak and understand the language of covenant. It's foreign, as if it's written in another language, spoken in another language. We see the nuts and bolts. We see the animals. We see, we see Abraham sleeping. We see the birds of prey. But what does it mean? So I want to try to help build some understanding that maybe those living in Abraham would have had at that time. R.C. Sproul writes this about um, how covenants were enacted. Now, consider that covenants could be created between equal parties, but in general, there was a greater and a lesser party. There was a party, you know, you see um, the covenant between, in the book of Ruth, between Ruth and Boaz. Boaz was a greater party in the sense that he had economic resources, he had authority and power that she did not have. I'm going to reference that relationship again in a bit. But generally, there was a greater and a lesser party. So he, he writes this, When covenants were made in the ancient Near East, certain rites would accompany the agreement in order to signify what would happen if one or both parties failed to live up to their end of the pact. That's the law of the covenant. What is the agreement? If we do these things, then these things will happen. If we do not do these things, then these bad things will happen. One common ritual involved dismembering animals and then laying them in pieces in two rows side by side with a path between. K. Arthur writes about this path in her book, Our Covenant God. It was called the Berith, B-E-R-Y-T-H, Berith. This, this path was two parts divided, and we're going to walk through that as promise of this covenant. Now, here's an interesting thing about our modern wedding ceremony, the Groom's family stands on one side, the bride's family stands on the other, and they walk through the pieces. That is covenant language. That is covenant symbolism. The individuals making the covenant would then pass between the animals and invoke a curse upon themselves if they broke the agreement. In effect, they were saying, if I do not fulfill the terms of this covenant, may the destruction that befell these animals also be upon my head. Now, in some of the covenants, only the lesser party passed through the animals because the lesser party didn't have much to give, only had a lot to gain. And so the greater party observed as the lesser party would walk through those bloody pieces and say, may I be as these bloody pieces if I do not live in love and law the way that we have agreed in this covenant. Now, here's what's remarkable about what we just read. Maybe you see it. Only one party walked through the bloody path of this covenant, and it was not the lesser party. My heart is exploding with passion as I say that to you right now, and I hope that you get it, that God, to someone that doesn't understand covenant age, this is just a thing that happened, but for Abraham, this would have been astounding. When God said, go get half the farm and bring it here and cut it in pieces and then walk through the path, the river of blood, 
he was expecting, he was reading into God's words that he would be called at the right time. Abraham would be called to walk through that. But he's not. God does. God knows Abraham can't live up to the love and the law of the covenant. And he says, when you break this, may I be as these pieces. May I be bloodied and broken. And he was. And he was. This would have been unthinkable, unfathomable to Abram. Hebrews 12, 29 tells us that God is a consuming fire. And we see in verse 17 of this passage in Genesis that when the sun went down and it was dark, and what is Abram doing? He's sleeping like a baby. A smoking fire pot with a flame torch passed between the pieces. Let that sink in. Let that soak in. You see, Jesus was bloodied and broken because life after life, country after country, family after family, generation after generation, we have been unable to live in the love and the law of the covenant. And he was divided and he was broken and he was bloodied for us. Jesus said no to everything for us. He said no to his deity when he became a man. He said no to his life when he was killed. He said no to his integrity when he wore our sin. He said no to heaven when he descended into hell. And he's asking us every now and then to return a little no. And we see a foretelling, a prophecy of that in this passage too. Because before Abram goes to sleep, this is the verse that has caught my heart for many years. I've written about it in several books. In verse 11, when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. What a picture of our life. That birds of prey are going to come after your life, after your sacrifice, after God's sacrifice, after the holiest moments and the holiest things in your life. And you have got to be like Abraham and drive them away. Now, I did a little research on this last week. In the ancient Middle East, vultures and carrion would quickly swoop down on the deathbeds of animals. And it didn't take long in that part of the country for a swarm of winged darkness to fill the sky. Now, we see that occasionally here. We see vultures in central Pennsylvania, maybe three, maybe four, maybe five. But this is talking about dozens, a swarm of vultures. And Abraham drives them away. He drives them away. It would have been a supernatural act. Bible scholars note that it probably would have been a supernatural act. And why is he asleep? Because he was probably exhausted from the work of it. They would have maybe left as the darkness settled in. They would have went and nested as birds do. They don't like to be active after the darkness falls. And so all that day during the light, he is fighting this swarm. And it would have been a supernatural act for one man to be capable of fighting them off. Oftentimes when covenants were enacted with just one animal, not many as we see here, they would have had many men attending to the vultures, to the birds of prey. You see, it wasn't this odd thing that the birds of prey are mentioned in there because that was a whole part of the covenant process. It was a supernatural thing that Abraham did in chasing those birds of prey away. He was empowered by God 
And that's key. We can't say no to anything without the power of God. We have no ability to chase the birds of prey away. But we must. i got to ask you this. Paul asked this in Romans. Should you go on sinning that grace may abound? You see, your covenant, your covenant God is going to cover your life in said love no matter how much you mess up the love and the law. But really, do you want to let Jesus be crucified for your sin and then let the vultures come on that sacrifice in disrespect to him? That's what we do when we go on sinning. That's what we do when we go on worshiping things that are not God. That's what we do when we go on saying yes to things that get in the way of our ability to say yes to Jesus. When you find yourself powerless over a certain behavior, you must renounce it because there is one who has the power over it. Abraham didn't have the power to chase those birds of prey away. God empowered him to chase them away. And whatever you feel powerless over or hopeless about that you just don't think can stop, that you don't understand because it doesn't make sense, and you can, God has the ability to empower you to chase the bird of prey away. I beg you, say no to everything for Jesus because he said no to everything for you. Jesus wants you to live in contentment. So if there's discontent in your life in any form or fashion, you've got a stronghold in your life that you must say no to. Jesus wants you to live in hope. He died so that you could. If there is chronic negativity in your life seeping out of your heart and your mind and your mouth, it must be renounced. You're powerless over it and you must say no to it. If you're living ashamed, you must say no to it because God's word says that though shame is going to be our strongest, most powerful, most private emotion, that Jesus died so that you did not have to live in it. Christ calls you to contentment and faithfulness. If there's infidelity in your life in any way, to him, to other covenant relationships in your life, you've got to say no to it. You've got to renounce it. Jesus has made you to be a healer who walks in freedom, so that if there is addiction and brokenness in your life, you've got to renounce it. So what do you renounce? Well, we renounce strongholds. Strongholds can be defined as a mindset, a value system, or a thought process that hinders your growth in Christ. And our friend Darren Tyler says, it's a mindset or belief that's pregnant with hopelessness. So you've just gotten to the place where you don't believe you'll ever overcome your anger. You've gotten to the place where you don't believe your life will ever have purpose. You've gotten to the place where you don't believe you can overcome the addiction. You've gotten to the place where you don't believe your family can ever be a whole picture of the gospel of Christ the way the Bible says it's supposed to be. You've gotten to the place where you're living under the labels of the abuse or the divorce or the sexual sin or the pain. And you've given up any hope that it can be different. Well, that's why we renounce. That's why we say no to things that we have no power over outside of God because we understand the covenant power and we want to live in the mindset and the thinking system and the thought process of a covenant God that his love and his law will trump any brokenness that we introduce to that love and that law. Now, renouncing was always a public act. In the scriptures, it's always a public act. 
This is not a private confession that you do with just one person. It's not a private confession to God so that you can be forgiven of your sin. It's a public act. Why? Why does it have to be verbal? Why does it have to be public? Four things. One is words have power. Did you ever try to start a diet without telling someone? Done that a time or two or three or four? You have failed before you begun. What you do not verbalize, you probably won't be able to do. Our office, a bunch of our team has completed the Whole30 diet a whole bunch of times to reset their hormones and get healthy, and some of them look dramatically different as a result. I have started a few times, but I have chosen to call mine a half Whole30. I'm not very good at it. I got through it once, and quite honestly, once is enough. What was the difference between the one time I got through it and the others? The first time I verbalized it with Bob, we decided together, we made a decision, we committed it to each other, and your words have power. Study that in the Bible. Study what James says about blessings and curses. The covenant, act of covenant, is an act of verbalizing blessings, but also saying if the covenant love and law is not upheld, there will be curses. Words have power. The other reason we use verbal renouncing is because Satan cannot hear your intentions. Unlike God, the enemy of your soul, he is not omnipotent, he is not omnipresent, he is not omniscient. He cannot hear what's in your head. And the minions and the forces of hell, they cannot read your thoughts either. Only God can do that. So when we speak out our intentions in agreement with Scripture, the forces of hell know they've already lost the battle because they understand the power of words. They understand the power of God's word. And the Bible says that Satan walks around warring like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. Whom he may devour. Tell him he may not. Say it out loud. You may not have this part of my life. The birds of prey may not land here. Charles Spurgeon has a just delicious message on Genesis 15. And he says that, you know what? We can't be responsible for the birds that fly above our heads, but we are responsible when they land and make a nest in our heads. Tell them they may not. The third thing is the weapon God has given you is the word. The weapon God has given you is the word. In Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, we're presented with the armor of God. Only one of the pieces of the armor of God is offensive. Which one is it? It's the sword of the Spirit. And it's the sword of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's weapon. It's not Dana's weapon. It's not Danette's weapon. It's not Matt's weapon. It's the Spirit's weapon. It's a battle between Satan and the Spirit. It's not a battle between you and Satan. You need a truth encounter. You need the words of truth from the scriptures. You do not need to fight Satan. You just need to choose to align yourself with what God's word has said about you and for you and speak it out loud because the forces of the darkness can't hear it unless you speak it out loud. But here's what really matters. Your words must be empowered by the name of Jesus. Now, we know that, right? We pray in the name of Jesus. The Bible says a lot about the name of Jesus, but we don't get it because we don't understand covenant. When Ruth was in covenant with Boaz, she had nothing. No relationships, no food, no money. She was a faithful, good woman who stayed with her mother-in-law at the great expense of her future. And when she comes into the land of her mother-in-law's forefathers, Boaz 
is a man of influence and power and resources. And the covenant said that when she went into his fields, she could glean whatever she wanted. Now here's what they understood about covenant that we don't. When a covenant was made between a lesser and a greater party, the lesser party walked around in the name of the greater party. And when she walked into those fields, because there were others trying to glean from those fields, the workers would tell them, go away, this is Boaz's field. But she would say, I come in the name of Boaz. And they would part for her. You are in covenant with the greatest power that exists. There is no higher power. There is nobody that can trump the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. When you say something in the name of Jesus Christ, every power in every corner of every planet parts the way and does what you ask. Believer, it's time you understand that you carry the covenant power of the greatest name and the highest power of all kingdoms ever. Carry it. Use it. Speak it. When you declare something in the name of Jesus, no matter how powerless you are, every other power must submit. So we renounce shame because there is a supernatural relationship of love and law that we cannot understand, but whose power and what power we can walk in. So we renounce the hopelessness that we can't overcome anger. We renounce the addiction. We renounce the shame. We renounce the occult practices. We renounce the screen addiction. We renounce anything, anything, anything that causes us to say no to Jesus and yes to something other than him. And listen, saying yes to Jesus as your Lord absolutely requires an associated no to many things. If you ask me to go out for coffee with you, I will, an associated, I will have to speak an associated no to Bob. I won't be at home to be with him. Or maybe to my teammates at work, I won't be there working with them. To say yes to you, I must say no to other things. And Jesus says to say yes to me, you must say no to every other thing. Now, the world tells us that this isn't healthy for our esteem. That saying yes to Jesus as our Lord, our master, that that's low self-esteem. But I just think that's chronic, crazy, double-minded thinking because we recognize that things like kindness, fidelity, patience, that those are good qualities, right? All of them require self-denial. All of them require Self-denial so that we can give ourselves to each other in kindness, in gentleness, in faithfulness. And we do it for the people that we love. Why don't we do it for Jesus? Is it possible that we don't really love him? Renouncing is not an emotion. It's a choice. But when you verbalize in the name of Jesus, the things in your life that have become pregnant with hopelessness, things in the spiritual world shift. This message was presented at the Pure Freedom Masterclass. It is the fifth in a series of six entitled Pure Freedom Masterclass Six Steps to Healing Series. Be sure to take the time to apply what you've learned in this podcast before you move on to the final step. It's beneficial to complete this step with a godly brother or sister. Write a list of things that have taken root in your life, like shame, gluttony, greed, or anger. 
List as many things as you feel God's Spirit leads you to include. Then, one by one, renounce them in the name of Jesus. Have a friend agree with you in the name of Jesus after each one. You'll be ready for the next podcast after you complete that task. If you enjoy this series and want to dig in deeper, consider joining us at next year's Pure Freedom Masterclass. Learn more at danagresh.com backslash masterclass. This podcast was produced by Pure Freedom Ministries.